Every leader has a strategy. Executing on that strategy is the challenge. If you want to learn how to effectively achieve what you've set out to accomplish, then this show is for you. Gain keen insights and listen in as leaders share their stories and challenges. Soar Vision Group and the Baldridge Foundation welcome you to Leader Dialogue Radio. Welcome everyone to the Leader Dialogue podcast. This platform is co-sponsored by the Baldridge Foundation and Soar Vision Group. I'm Lisa Council. I'm the Chief Commercial Officer for Soar Vision Group, and I'm super excited today. We actually have a, a stand-in as my co-host. Dr. Roger Spoolman is with us. Dr. Spoolman is an accomplished healthcare executive coach and having served as president and CEO of Mercy Health for many years. He also served as senior executive for Trinity Health, one of the largest health systems in the country. In 2019, Roger retired from Trinity, and we were super fortunate at Soar Vision Group to have Roger join us as a senior advisor for strategy, leadership, and innovation. Welcome to the show, Roger. Thank you, Lisa. It's been my pleasure to work with Soar and all the great people there. And our esteemed guest today is Chuck Stokes. And Chuck is the former president and CEO of Memorial Hermann Health System. He joined that system in 2008 as the chief operating officer. And in 2017, he was named president and CEO of the system. In his role, Chuck was responsible for leading and overseeing a $5.6 billion health systems network of more than 17 hospitals and 300 delivery sites with more than 27,000 employees. Chuck retired from Memorial Hermann effective December 2019. Wow, Chuck, with you having 27,000 employees, today's topic around workforce engagement in healthcare pre and post COVID, you're, you're quite the guy. You're the perfect guy to have on the show. Well, thank you, Lisa. It's a pleasure to join you and Roger today, and uh, I'm just delighted. And this is certainly a, a great topic for me as uh, employee engagement. I think that's you know why most of us went into healthcare was to help people and to make a difference. Well, that's great. Well, you had a really long dossier for me to go through, so I elected to just give a little bit of a background about you, but I'd love for you to tell our listening audience, which by the way, audience, if you could join in on the leaderdialogue.com website, and that's D-I-A-L-O-G-U-E.com. Um, you can follow along for many of our conversations around Baldridge. Chuck, we'd like to hear a little bit about your past and how you came to Memorial Hermann, again, one of the more progressive health systems in the country. Um, you also have a pretty esteemed Baldridge background that our audience would love to hear about. My first job in healthcare was actually as an orderly, and that was at uh, my hometown hospital in Yazoo City, Mississippi. It was King's Daughters Hospital. I got interested in healthcare, and one of the jobs that I thought I really wanted to do uh, getting into healthcare was to become a CRNA. And uh, I got to observe uh, in my local hospital what our CRNAs did and decided to go to a nursing school. In 1974, I went to nursing school, started at University Medical Center in Jackson, Mississippi, got my nursing degree, worked my way through nursing school as a scrub tech in the OR. Uh, I said, at least I'll get to see what uh, CRNAs and anesthesiologists do. And I stayed there after graduation for three years as a critical care nurse and had had an opportunity. Back then, you had to spend three years in the ICU before you were eligible to go to CRNA school. But I had an opportunity to go into uh, nursing administration 
And I did and got very interested in that and decided I still wanted, I had to have a lot more knowledge about leadership. I knew a lot about clinical care, but not a lot about leading, leading people. So I went back to graduate school at the University of Alabama in Birmingham and got my MHA degree and actually returned to University Medical Center as part of their senior team for three more years and then subsequently left there. And, and uh, I've been the COO for three different health systems uh, in and around the Southeast. Uh, I was president of North Mississippi Medical Center and we were a 2006 uh, Baldridge recipient uh, while I was president there. And then uh, I had an opportunity to join up and rejoin an, an old colleague of mine, Dan Walterman, uh, who was the CEO, President and CEO at Memorial Hermann. And I came back there and uh, came to Memorial Hermann in 2008 as their system COO and did that for eight years. And then the um, last two plus years, almost two and a half years as their uh, president and CEO. And so, uh, as you uh, stated earlier, I retired in uh, December, uh, at the end of December of 2019. And wow, never thought that that could be a timely retirement, uh, given all the <laughs> I know, right? yeah. pandemic. And actually didn't count on my retirement being exactly like it is, but it's certainly been interesting to watch from this vantage point, a little weird uh, in that, you know, I've been used to leading a lot of uh, crises with hurricanes and floods and stuff like that, but nothing like this. Chuck, uh, you and I were talking earlier about the good fortune we've had to have retired before all this. Yeah. Timing is everything, isn't it? <laughs> you, you know, I, I had asked you before we started recording about your vision now or your clarity. Do you have the same clarity and objectivity that I think I have when you're right in the midst of things in the day-to-day, it's a bit hard to achieve that. But now, now that you have been able to step away from it a little bit, how do you see the whole area of engagement, employee engagement, sort of post-COVID? We're going to change our, our lexicon here yeah. pretty suddenly, but pre-COVID and post-COVID, what are the differences that you're seeing, Chuck? I would probably start with prior to COVID, pre-COVID, is across the country, we all recognize that we had significant workforce shortages across the country. And I mean, that was in everything from physicians, primary care physicians, to nurses, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, other allied health professionals. And, and the world was actually changing you know, quite rapidly with technology and the growth of artificial intelligence and machine learning. I mean, we could see some things coming that were going to have significant impact on the workforce. But we went through, and I'm sure you did this as, um, as a healthcare executive of a big system, is we were constantly trying to come up with creative programs to recruit nurses. We had to f- help fund faculty positions for nursing programs in order for them to train the number of nurses that we needed. And I'm, I keep referring to nurses, but it's really other allied health professionals. And so we, anticipated in our careers the aging of the baby boomers and that we had a workforce shortage. We knew the workforce shortage was going to get worse. And now all of a sudden we have this pandemic and the pandemic has totally changed the nature of how we're dealing with our workforce and what we're going to have to, how we're going to have to deal with them for the future. And so 
I'll make a few comments that, you know, seem a little dark. It's like, here's the real crisis at hand. And I like to break things down and, you know, what should we be doing back to your objectivity? Are we more objective that we're out of the, you know, fire, so to speak, of our job? But I've always tried to look at things in terms of what do you need to do now? What do you need to do in the near term? And what do you need to do in the far term? And so certainly this pandemic has been horrific. The economic devastation, you know, 36 million jobs lost now. I think our unemployment rate was at like 14.7%. We anticipate that getting worse. And so we're going to have to try to reimagine kind of what, what do we need to do with our workforce? And so we had the shortage prior to the pandemic of physicians, nurses, and other first responders, other allied healthcare givers, hands-on caregivers. And what's happening now as the crisis has hit is they're working tirelessly, they're getting sick, they're getting their family members sick, and now they're dying. You know, they're dying uh, on, at, a, at a pretty alarming rate. In addition to all of that happening, and they've been caring for people and trying to save their lives, they're getting laid off now because of the economic devastation. Pay cuts, pay cuts. And the furloughs, furloughs, pay cuts, it's terrible. And hospitals are trying to figure out what are they doing to keep their doors open. And so now they're furloughing and laying off the people that have been very true to them and have been trying to take care of their patients. And then in the middle of all that, you got to think about their, what's happened in the workforce. Their spouse or their partner has been laid off. Their 401ks have been devastated. And so when you think, put all that together, it, it makes for our workforces, you know, PTSD. I mean, we're going to have sure. post-traumatic uh, syndrome with our uh, healthcare providers. You know, as it was last year, I think Gallup poll in 2019 said only 30% of our workforce was engaged to begin with. And we know from a productivity standpoint, the lost, uh, the cost of having that 30% engagement, that is devastating to begin with. And so now, in addition to all of this, what I'm thinking about in the near term is when this passes, and we get on the downside of the pandemic, what is the status of the workforce? And I think that from what I'm seeing, I'm coaching about five or six CEOs from across the country. I call it comfort coaching. Uh, they can talk to me. They can't scream at their board chair, but they can you know, vent to me. And I think that what you're going to see is you're going to see a workforce that has physicians and, and employees, uh, and some physicians are employees, but you're going to see a group of employees that have some very ill feelings towards their uh, leadership within their organization. And especially those that they felt like they, their organization did not provide them adequate PPE uh, to take care of their patients safely, telling them to use a N95 mask for two weeks at a time, or, you know, use a trash bag if you run out of gowns and just kind of, things that we would think are ridiculous. And so I think that when this is all said and done, you're going to have a group of employees that have some very ill feelings and physicians, unless the organization does something to remediate that, you're going to have those individuals have some very strong feelings. 
And most of the hospitals, I think uh, there was a recent, uh, I saw a recent poll that said 80% of the hospitals, the staff feels that they were not prepared prior to the pandemic. They didn't have enough uh, PPE. They were concerned, 94% were concerned about passing this uh, virus to their family members. And, you know, 64% said that they were planning on leaving either their employer or leaving the profession after this was over. The emotional toll, uh, again, as an old critical care nurse, I can, I can relate to people dying. But when we took care of people that were dying in the ICUs way back in the 70s, you know, you had family members around, you had other staff around, but this is an episode where family members are dying by themselves and you've got caregivers holding their hands, putting a cell phone up to their face so they can say goodbye to family. And we've never dealt with that before. So my, my feeling is even the most stable of physicians and caregivers, that over time, that exposure to that kind of environment over, over time is going to take its toll on healthcare workers. You and know, the then, EAP programs are really, really overrun as well, aren't they? That's correct. And, and then the other crisis here that I think that we have to anticipate is people like you and I, executives that are at the end of our career, there are a lot of them that have a lot of experience and they, they might be in that like 62 to, and they said, look, I want to work till I'm 65, 66, maybe 67. But when they come back after this, what they're going to be strapped with is the stuff that you and I have dealt with for many years, right. but it is downsizing, restructuring, trying to get it back to a bond rating that is you know adequate or get back to an operating margin that is sustainable for the system. And it's all going to be about restructuring, redesigning the clinical care model. And it is going to be very, very intense. And my concern is that I think that people that are executives that are at the end of their career are going to figure out, you know, I really, this will take 10 years off my life. Maybe yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm not going to stick around for all this hard yeah. work. I'll yeah. just go, I'm going to give the board my notice when I get, when the, what, when, you know, when we get, through this, I'm going to give them my notice and I'm going to be uh, having them go form a search committee to replace me. So I think that this is a very kind of dark picture about the workforce, but I do think that there are opportunities there. But these are things that, you know, you just, you can't not address and you can't just stick your head in the sand. You, you have to be able to lead your organization through this, these times. You know, Chuck, the closest thing that we can come up with in our lifetimes is 9-11. You know, it's, it approximates this in terms of a, a complete change to everyone. This even hits closer to home to all of us. But during 9-11, after 9-11, the heroes of 9-11, the firefighters and the first responders, there was such an increase in the number of people applying to the, I think, the, the academies for the fire departments and uh, police force they saw a significant bump in, yeah. in, uh, in, in applications and interest. And they became our heroes, right? You know, sure. it was back to when we were kids, we'd wave at every policeman and then it kind of went away from that. And now it, then it cycled back. So they're the heroes again. Okay. Well, this is the same kind of thing. The healthcare workers are the heroes yeah. of this pandemic. That's correct. And, and that helps a little bit but I don't think it solves the problem that you just very clearly articulate. 
Yeah, I I think you know when you look at the ratings now, there there was a poll that was that was just out, and nurses and physicians and other allied health professionals they're in the 90th percentile of consumer their views, consumer views towards healthcare professionals. They're clapping, they're, you know, doing these uh, every seven o'clock, every evening celebrations. And I think that it is going to motivate and inspire a lot of people to go into healthcare. My concern and my, what I think is the reality is those jobs are going to change. And so, you know, just a, a couple of examples of that. We always talk about nurses and doctors practicing at the top of their license. And I think that with the shortage that we had before the pandemic, and you got to remember that there's there's a the baby boomer generation of allied health professionals. They're thinking the same thing that I just articulated about the executive. If they're 60 years old and they're your 35-year experienced ICU nurse or pharmacist or respiratory therapist, et cetera, you know, they might have a spouse at home saying, look, you've survived hepatitis, you survived HIV, you survived H1N1, SARS, Ebola, and now you survived this. Don't you think it's time to give it up? And these are people that are tired of working 12-hour shifts anyway. And so I think that you might have a group of professionals that are going to be retiring out maybe a little earlier than they thought they were going to retire, but that is your brain trust walking out of the organization. And so I think that just like we are seeing and have seen over the past five to seven years, your stellar bedside hands-on caregiver nurse say, you know, I'm 23, 24, 25 years old. I can put my life on pause for the next two years and I can go back and become an advanced nurse practitioner. And I can go from, you know, I can double my salary by doing that for two years of investment. That's a no brainer, you know, from a, from a younger person's standpoint. And I think that that's going to further compound the problem of your BS, you know, your BS graduates and bedside graduates. So what I think the industry has a capability and here's a silver lining is to say for pharmacists and respiratory therapists and nurses and other OTs and PTs training a training program to develop a technical level position to do 75 to 80% of what these folks have done in the past would be a good thing. And it would be an employment vehicle. It would be less expensive to the organizations. And it's actually going to be necessary because as we've seen, we don't have enough instructors to put all the nurses and allied health professionals through school that we thought we would need to take care of the aging population. And the reality today is even if you did, healthcare systems could not afford all the people that we need. No, they couldn't. So you're going to have to come to back to a plan B. What is plan B? And plan B is you're going to change the clinical model of care and you're going to have to train another technical level of individual in order to practice not only at the top of license, but to redefine those licenses. That within itself is going to be challenging. You know, it's, you know, you have to go back to the professional associations that license and certify professionals, getting schools to change curriculums and getting professional associations to change 
the level of practice difference is, is going to be challenging. Yeah. Well, but, and not to mention, you've, you've mentioned the word technical a couple of times, Chuck, and, you know, telemedicine has boomed as a byproduct of COVID. And I know in the state of Georgia, where I live, we didn't actually approve telemedicine visits through our payers until uh, late 20, um, 2018. So we had about a year's experience. But even in my own, my own physician's office, I could tell there were only a handful of physicians who felt really comfortable about right. doing the telemedicine visits. And, and admittedly, they were some of the younger physicians. So some of the other physicians, they actually didn't do the televisits. As you said, again, whether it's a nurse like, you know, you or myself, you know, an allied healthcare professional, we're going to have to take on some technical skills to actually help be at the elbow. Like I was trained in, in nursing school, like we're kind of always at the elbow of the physician. Well, now that that bleeds into kind of technology support and technical support. So tell us a little bit about your thoughts around telemedicine and where you think it's going to go from, from where it's been. The, the telemedicine and virtual visit horse has left the barn. <laughs> uh, yes. We're never, we're never going back. And as a matter of fact, you know, the consumer has been actually asking for that for, for many, many years. And so the reason that it hasn't is because one, there was not a reimbursement mechanism for physicians to feel like they were adequately paid for their time. But today, if you're going to be more consumer centric, what people want today is they want access, they want a cost, uh, you know, they want value, they want a, a reasonable cost for the service, but they want convenience. And again, you got to think if, you know, if you had a laparoscopic surgical procedure that, you know, you got three holes in you and the doctor says, come back and see me in two weeks, you have to take off work. You have to take a, you know, half a day off work, drive across town, depending if you're in Houston, that's a, that's a chore within itself, you pay $35 to park. And then you go in for a 10 minute visit for the doctor to come in and say, those three holes look great. You know, uh, you don't have fever, plus it and coming out of, out of the incision site there and there's no redness around it. You look great, but look what you had to do to get there for that 10 minute visit. Instead of right. saying, doctor telling you, take a picture of your, those three holes and send it to me via telephone. And if you're not running a fever, and there's not infection, you know, you have pus coming out of the wound. <laughs> I mean, and so again, those are the things that the consumer has wanted, but the doctors are going to have to figure out how do they retool their practice virtually and then a telemedicine format. And if you think about that, that is another opportunity to train a technical level individual to partner with the physician to do that. And it's going to be different because you can't have a medical assistant in the office and a scribe in the office and the physician in the office. And then a technical, that becomes a crowd. Oh, too many people. Yeah. But I think you're going to have a technical person that accepts the physician, make sure that they are, you know, practicing evidence-based medicine. They're checking all the boxes of things that they need to check with the patient in a virtual environment. And I think that that is going to, that's going to create a new job for somebody in healthcare. Really what you want with the aging of the population is people with chronic conditions, COPD, congestive heart failure, uh, diabetes, 
you want these people to be cared for in their homes. You certainly don't want them in your emergency room. Right. You want them in the acute care environment. And they don't want to they go don't want to, be to the hospital. Well, and now with COVID, nobody wants to go to the hospital, sure. especially the ER. You're right. So how do you equip the family member or the patient or to care for that individual in the home? You can't send an $80,000 a year nurse to somebody's home three days a week to do that. Mm-hmm. You can train a technical level individual to make those home visits to connect them technologically back to the office and to the EMR and to say, you're doing fine or you need to modify this or you need to do that. That's coming. And again, here's an opportunity to change the clinical model of care to make it more accessible and more efficient and more consumer centric for the consumer. And I see that as a, I see that as a positive. I had a physician, one of my chief medical officers, seven, eight years ago, I tried to introduce telemedicine in my system and doctor, I won't name names, but you know who you are. If you're listening, you know who you are. And, and he just said, this is an insult to my profession to interact with my patient over a video screen. And I said, it's not an insult. It's, it's really patient sensitive. It's patient centric. And you know that we all know that there are some uh, specialties that lend themselves perfectly. H and P's can be done pre-visits, initial consultations, that kind of thing. Behavioral health is perfect for it. It is perfect. Dermatology. Mm -hmm. Derm. Yeah. And I know that you're very interested and I am too in innovation and creativity and, and that's how we're going to solve problems that are created now. And how, what are your thoughts, Chuck, about what's going to change for the better because of this? You know, we've talked about telemedicine. Are there any others that you're thinking of that are really going to change for the better for healthcare? Yeah. When you look at the capability of artificial intelligence and machine learning that is now doubling at the rate of 18 months, Access to evidence-based protocols is going to be so, so much more expedited that, again, advanced nurse practitioners and other people will have access to that in the stroke of a key on a, on a keyboard. And I think that, again, as we restructure the model of care, this is going to be very painful, but it's going to be a necessary thing to do to get your financials back in order. When you think about telemedicine in the clinic visit, you're going to have to expand that to intensivists, hospitalists, neonatology, all of your hospital-based physicians. You know, in your big tertiary centers, you're going to still have to have a, a an intensivist in your intensive care unit. But if you're a 150-bed hospital, you might have an advanced nurse practitioner from 7P to 7A in the mm-hmm. Is connected back to the EICU concept. A lot of people have done this successfully over the last uh, decade or so, but a lot of people walked away from it because they didn't think that it was good medicine. But today, you can't afford, the average hospital can't afford to have an intensivist and a hospitalist or multiple hospitalists in their hospitals 24 hours a day, seven days a week, practicing evidence based care opportunity to reconnect through technology and have that advanced nurse practitioners, you know, connected 24 hours to a intensivist in a medical office building somewhere. And if the intensivist says, 
you need to call, you need to have a, uh, an intensivist be there. Then they get on the phone and they have them there within 30 minutes or, you know, whatever the acceptable time limit is. But those are opportunities. I think, again, we talked about redesigning the clinical models for your allied health professionals. And then the, just these new jobs for home care, for your hospital-based physicians, et cetera. Yeah. I think remote it, monitoring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Opportunities for yeah. workforce. And, I, and I'm optimistic about that. I think one of the things that we, you and Lisa and I had talked about, we need to start getting kids interested in healthcare careers yeah. in the ninth and 10th grade. And we could actually start training them in the 11th and 12th grade for some of these technical level jobs. They can go to school from eight till noon. They're a junior and senior year of high school. And we can turn them over to a junior college there uh, from one o'clock to five o'clock in the afternoon. Dual but enrollment. They can get college credit while they're in high school. Day they graduate from high school, they can get a technical level job making a living wage, $15, $20 an hour, depending on what, what the job is. And, and if you just look at like, you know, what are we talking about now? Spending hundreds of thousands of jobs on tracking and tracing this tracing. Mm-hmm. You know, Back to the uh, emphasis on public health. There's all kind of new opportunities in public health that will create new jobs. And I think that this virus has shined a light on things that we haven't done very well yeah. in healthcare. Public health, we hadn't paid a lot of attention to it. We've not paid a lot of attention to the social disparities. It's amazing that, you know, on the news, uh, as a result of this virus, people are saying, oh my God, we have uh, all of these African Americans and, and Latinos are dying at a disproportionate rate. We've known that for 20 years. Those create new jobs opportunities for kids that are coming out of high school, that are coming out of college, that will help create sustainable jobs for them. And, and I would like to just t- touch, but I know we're running out of time here, on, you know, every health system needs an operating model. And I think Baldridge here is a great opportunity for people to say, I'm not trying to win an award, but I need a good operating model. Just looking at what we've talked about, we've talked about leadership, we've talked about workforce, and we talked about knowing your consumer. And so even if you don't want to pursue an award from a standpoint, I hope that people will look at Baldridge as a great operating model. And even if you just pick out the categories that we've talked about today, how do you know your customer better? How do you know your workforce, how to engage your workforce? It's a great opportunity to introduce Baldrige to an organization. Yeah, that category five was exactly where I was going to go next. Like, you know, you've been a two-time winner for Baldrige. And again, it's not about winning. Um, It's about changing and improving an organization, whether it's healthcare or small business or education, uh, lots of verticals. But really that workforce engagement, along with a sundry of other um, categories, they can really, um, it can make a great difference. I had a, a call with the Press Ganey executive a couple of weeks ago. And uh, again, Press Ganey has their high reliability model, which Chuck, yes. you're, a big, you're a big proponent of, of high reliability. Again, it's a form of operating model, right? And he said that from the Press Ganey lens, you know, they saw organizations that had an operating model, whether it was Baldridge or HRO or some other model that they were able to pivot easier through this crisis. 
we, we love Baldridge and we want everybody to, to capitalize on their categories and their process, but it really is kind of, kind of about having a plan and having the organization pervasively understand that plan so that when something does go wrong, that they can, uh, that they can move and move well um, as an organization. So you are right, Chuck. We are at the end of our time. You have been a fabulous guest. Yes, I would actually like to just go ahead and put you on the spot and ask you to come back. We would like to have a part two and really focus uh, a bit more on physician engagement. I know you have a couple of partners at your consulting firm now. Um, maybe we can lure one or both of them to join us on the next show if you'd be up for that. We would be, we would be glad to do that. That's awesome. Awesome. Uh, we are so thankful that you could join us today, Chuck, um, Thanks, staying Chuck. safe in Houston. Again, thank you for joining us, our listening audience. Um, please join us on leaderdialogue.com. Many of our podcasts are stored there and we look forward to the next, the next show. And Chuck, thanks again for joining. 